welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Kareen, and we are two Onk Docs. This week's episode, we're going to be focusing on thyroid cancers. We're going to go over the important details on staging, breaking down the various types of thyroid cancers, and of course, we're going to dive deep into the treatments for this disease group. So to start us out, what is the initial workup for thyroid cancer? So I'm not going to go into all the details of working up thyroid nodules. You guys will remember a lot of that or maybe vaguely remember it from your internal medicine days. Those are definitely testable questions for the internal medicine boards. And also if you were an endocrinologist, you should know all about those. But we will, I think it is something you guys could brush up a little bit on before your boards. The NCCN guidelines has a nice little Snapchat um, or a snapshot of how to work up thyroid nodules, but we're really going to be focusing on when the FNA comes back with a cancer. And so, like I just said, we need to have an ultrasound guided FNA of a suspected thyroid nodule and potentially of any involved lymph nodes to confirm the diagnosis and start staging these patients. You want to get a CT without contrast of the neck. The reason we want without contrast is because iodinated contrast, it can block uptake for any subsequent radioactive iodine used in the treatment of these cancers. That's really important. The last thing you want to do is make a very effective treatment ineffective by giving the patient contrast beforehand. Chest imaging is also recommended. You can even just do a chest x-ray is enough because generally these cancers stay within the thyroid or the lymph nodes nearby. And one caveat is in medullary thyroid cancer, you also need to obtain preoperative calcitonin, CEA, and urine metanephrines to rule out MEN2 prior to going into any surgeries. Absolutely. That's because MEN2A is also associated with theochromocytoma and hyperparathyroidism. And so how do we stage thyroid cancers? So thyroid cancers are staged differently than a lot of other malignancies in that age plays a role into staging of differentiated thyroid cancers. The age cutoff right now per the NCCN guidelines is 55 years old, and those younger than 55 can only be staged as a stage 1 or a stage 2 if they're metastatic. If you're over the age of 55 at time of diagnosis, there's a detailed TNM staging you guys can review, but I won't go into the details of it. For anaplastic thyroid cancer, every single person is automatically a stage four. That is because this is a very aggressive disease that we'll talk about a little later. For medullary thyroid cancer has a very detailed TNM staging system. It is not based on age, and it's something that I think you guys can refresh, but I really don't remember us being tested on the details of staging for thyroid cancer, more so the treatment. I agree. And so before we talk about medullary thyroid cancer, which comes from the parafollicular cells, let's talk about the cancers that arise from the follicular cells of the thyroid. So thyroid cancers coming from the follicular cells can be broken up into differentiated thyroid cancers. So this is the majority of our thyroid cancer cases by far and away. It's 95% of cases. And this includes papillary, follicular, and herthal cell tumors. Then there is a rare but aggressive anaplastic thyroid cancer, which compromise or com- <laughs> compromise 2% of cases. Um, women are affected three times more than men for thyroid cancer. So think female age and the peak incidence of diagnosis is 49 years old. So again, below the age of 55 playing into that staging system. 
Risk factors for getting thyroid cancers can include prior radiation exposure to the area, especially if a person was radiated prior or younger than the age of 10. This is important as these thyroid cancers can pop up in patients who were treated for pediatric cancers, and they are many decades out of their pediatric cancer, may not even bring it to your attention. They're in survivorship mode, but we do need to be aware that they are at risk for thyroid cancers. Familial syndromes are also can put patients at risk for thyroid cancers, and specifically, we think of the MEN2A, MEN2B, as well as Carney complex, Cowden syndrome, and familial adenomatosis polyposis, or FAP. So that's the mutation in the APC gene. Definitely. And so let's focus on the treatment of differentiated thyroid cancers, which include papillary, follicular, and herthal cell. So the treatment of differentiated thyroid cancers includes surgery, and this is most commonly a full thyroidectomy, but possibly could be a lobectomy to remove the cancer. We also talk about radioactive iodine to ablate the tumor cells, as well as TSH suppression. So thyroidectomy is needed if there are known distant mets, so you do a complete dissection not only of the thyroid, but of the lymph nodes involved. Or if there is extra thyroid extension, if the tumor is greater than four centimeters, if there's lateral cervical lymph node mets, or if it's poorly differentiated disease. Radioactive iodine, or RAI, is indicated after surgery if there is lymph nodes, so N1B disease, gross extra thyroid extension, or if the tumor is greater than or equal to four centimeters. Or if there's post-operative unstimulated thyroid hormone greater than 10 nanograms per milliliter, or if there's bulky or greater than five lymph nodes involved, and lastly, if there's vascular invasion. So those bad key players, we think about radioactive iodine. Some notable toxicities for radioactive iodine is nasolacrimal duct stenosis. There can be decrease in blood counts depending on the dose, and there's a small risk of solid cancers or MDS in the future. One thing that we do take into consideration when we're giving radioactive iodine is fertility. This can cause decrease in fertility in men. It can cause temporary amenorrhea in women, and women should not become pregnant within 6 to 12 months after a dose of RAI to decrease the risk of miscarriage or complications, and it should never be given to lactating mothers. A study from thyroid in 2006 showed that TSH suppression with Synthroid or levothyroxine has been shown to improve overall survival in metastatic disease, um, looking at overall survival of 15 years versus 11 years without it. The risk of TSH suppression with Synthroid includes atrial fibrillation, osteoporosis, and you can have exacerbation of coronary artery disease symptoms. And so we need to think about these, but most of the time this is all given and dictated by the endocrinologist caring for these patients. And we usually don't see them on the medog side until they become uh, RAI resistant. And I'll talk about that a little bit. Surveillance for these patients includes serial thyroglobulin levels, neck ultrasounds, an RAI scan or a PET scan if there's concerns of progression. And a PET scan can actually predict survival as being FDG-AVID or positive disease is linked with worse prognosis. And that's usually when the patients come on over to us because they're refractory to RAI. Absolutely. And so are there some thyroid cancers that are refractory to RAI? Well, I just hinted at it, and yes, there are. So 25 to 50% of metastatic thyroid cancers can become refractory to RAI. Refractoriness is defined as negative RAI scan, so it's no longer uptaking. 
um, and nodules are seen on a CT scan, or if there is uptake on an RAI scan, but the nodules are showing progression, so they're growing in size. And lastly, we consider RAI refractory if the patient has met their lifetime dose of radioactive iodine, so they can for no further get treated with radioactive iodine. If this is occurs, we need to utilize further targeted systemic therapies, which is usually when they come on over us to medical oncology, and we'll talk a lot about the treatments that we can offer now. Yeah, I agree. I think the bulk of medical oncology, both consultations and questions for the board exams, comes in terms of when systemic therapy is needed. So can you tell us more about the treatment options for RAI refractory disease? Most definitely. I think this is where our questions will come from on our boards. And so first we talk about the historical frontline therapy, which is serafinib. And this was based on the decision trial, which was published in the Lancet in 2014. It compared serafinib to placebo because we didn't have anything else. And what the results showed is that serafinib had a longer median progression-free survival of about 10.811 months versus 5.8 months with placebo. Up next, we talk about linvatinib, which got approved based on the SELECT trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015, and this compared linvatinib to placebo, and what the results showed is that linvatinib had a longer median progression-free survival of 18 months versus three months with placebo. We even showed benefit of linvatinib in patients who had prior VEGF-targeted therapy, and this is actually our preferred first-line medication now. So linvatinib, if that is your test answer, that is the correct answer. It has beat out serafinib in favoring clinical treatment. Up next, we have cabozantinib, which is another TKI, and this got approved based on the COSMIC 311 trial, and this was also used after the progression on lenvatinib or serafinib, so it's our second-line TKI that we use after frontline. We also need to think about other targetable mutations for these tumors, and one is N-TRAC fusion cancers. And so if you do find an N-TRAC fusion, we've talked about this before, but we use larotrectinib or N-TRECTINIB. These can have RET fusion, so be on the lookout for RET fusions, and we can target that with selpercatinib or prasiletinib. You can also see BRAF V600E mutations in these tumors, and so we use combination dibrafenib or trametinib. And if the tumor has greater than 10 mutations per megabase, or it's considered high tumor mutational burden, we can utilize immunotherapy with pembrolizumab in the treatment. Yes, definitely important to know the NTRAC drugs and the RET drugs, as well as the BRAF drugs. These come up again and again in all types of cancers and also in thyroid cancer, as Sam just mentioned. And so now can you talk to us about how we treat anaplastic thyroid cancer? So anaplastic thyroid cancer is the most aggressive histology of all thyroid cancers with an average survival in months. This is about three to 12 months overall survival for a majority of patients. And complete resection of the cancer is rare, but if it is possible, we go for it. You try to go for that R0 with a total thyroidectomy and lymph node dissection. Additional therapies for anaplastic thyroid cancer can include radiation with or without sensitizing chemotherapy. It can be considered. There is no standard regimen or standard approach for this. So regimens that you can use are weekly paclitaxel plus carboplatin, weekly docetaxel plus doxorubicin, or single-agent weekly paclitaxel or single-agent docetaxel along with radiation. Other recommendations can consider TSH suppression. 
And one newer targeting treatment for anaplastic thyroid is combination dibrafenib plus trebetinib if the, if the tumor has a BRAF V600E mutation. I think in this group, clinical trials is always the right answer if that's on your vignettes, um, because this is truly a devastating aggressive cancer where we don't have standard therapies other than targeting the BRAF if they harbor that mutation. Definitely. I had a patient with anaplastic thyroid that actually had to be rough and had a really, really great response, even though traditionally, as you mentioned, it's a very aggressive disease. And so switching gears to cancers arising from the parafollicular cells, can you tell us more about medullary thyroid cancer? Definitely. So medullary thyroid is very separate from the other thyroid cancers that we've just talked about, and it is associated with the MEN syndromes in about 20% of cases. So these patients, like I mentioned in the beginning, they need to undergo additional cancer screening to look for the pheochromocytomas. And so you also need to check for germline RET proto-oncogene mutations in exons 10, 11, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Treatment of these can be total thyroidectomy with bilateral neck dissection if the tumor is greater than one centimeter, so it's a smaller cutoff than before, or if there's bilateral thyroid disease seen. If the tumor is less than one centimeter, surgery is thyroidectomy with consideration of the neck dissection. So either way, no matter how big it is, the whole thyroid is coming out. Greater than a centimeter, you need to also think about dissecting neck. Systemic therapies for medullary thyroid cancer include targeting VEGF or EGFR inhibition with vendetinib. This was based on the Zeta trial, which showed prolonged medium progression-free survival compared to placebo. With this drug, we need to be aware of QTC prolongation. We also can utilize cabozantinib, and this is based on the exam trial, and we can also target those RET mutations. They are seen in about half of medullary thyroid cancers, and again, we can utilize selpercatinib or pralcetinib. Yeah, absolutely. So commit the RET drugs, especially the association of RET with medullary thyroid cancer. Pretty sure we had a question on that, and know that the drugs are selpercatinib and pralcetinib. And that if patients do not have a RET mutation, then you should consider either vendetinib, which has that QTC prolongation, or cabozantinib. And so that was a great overview, Sam. What are our key takeaways? So our key takeaways for this topic is for differentiated thyroid cancers, we consider a thyroidectomy is needed if there are known distant mets, if there's extra thyroidal extension, if the tumor is greater than four centimeters, or if there's lateral cervical lymph node mets, or if that tumor is poorly differentiated. We consider radioactive ablation. Um, is indicated if there is N1B disease, gross extrathyroid extension, if the tumor is greater than or equal to four centimeters, or if the post-op unstimulated, unstimulated thyroid globin is greater than 10 nanograms per milliliter, or if there's bulky or greater than five lymph nodes involved, or if there's vascular invasion. If the tumor is becomes refractory to RAI in the differentiated thyroid cancers, we utilize targeted therapies. And first line is linvatinib. Historically, it used to be serafinib. Second line, we talk about cabozantinib. We also look for NTRAC fusions to utilize larotrectinib or entrectinib. We also look for RET fusions to utilize selpercatinib or pralcetinib. And you can consider pembrolizumab if you have that high tumor mutational burden of greater than 10. In anaplastic thyroid cancer, again, this can be a very devastating, aggressive disease. We consider upfront surgery if that is feasible, and you need to be checking for the BRAF V600E mutations. If you find it, you utilize dibrafenib plus trametinib. 
Lastly, in medullary thyroid cancers, we think about RET-targeting agents with selpercatinib or pralcetinib. And if they do not harbor the RET mutation, then we think about EGFR, VEGF inhibition with vandetinib and cabozantinib. That was a wonderful summary. Definitely commit the systemic therapy indications in thyroid cancer because that's where the highest bulk of questions is going to come from. And as always, thank you for listening. Good luck with studying. And please reach out to us with corrections or comments on our Instagram or Twitter to OncDocs. Have a great week, guys.